I have the privilege of continuing our series on the life of David with this sermon, David and the Shepherd. David and the Shepherd. Last week we looked at God's covenant with David, his promise that of his seed he would raise up uh, a son who would be on the throne of his kingdom forever and ever. And that son of David we know is Jesus Christ. And in this passage before us, Psalm 23, we get to see the heart of David in response to the heart of his Lord and Savior to him as his shepherd. As we read this very, very familiar passage of Scripture, I want to kind of get out of the way and let it just simply speak to you. Um, What we will see as we read this is simply the expression of David, look how good the Lord is to me. Look at how good He is. You should trust Him too. That's the whole sermon. Look at how good the Lord is. Look at how well He loves me. Look at Him. Look at what He's doing here. Look what He does for me. He's always with me. So you should trust Him too. And you can trust Him because He's good. That's the point of the whole sermon. But I want you to ask before we read, how does this point to Jesus Christ of Nazareth specifically That's the question the Holy Spirit always wants us to ask every time we engage with God's Word. Whether it's directly or sort of indirectly, God's Word is about Jesus. And so, before I read this, there are two points that we're going to look at this morning. Two ideas, two uh, big picture truths through this psalm. That is, David's shepherd and David's son. Alright, so let's look into God's Word together. Psalm 23, this is God's comforting, true, holy word. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Praise Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word. Fill us with Your Spirit. Shine Your true face on us through the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the love of Your heart reflected in the life of David as he walked with you, as he was rescued by you, as he was forgiven by you, as he was adopted by you, as he was saved by you, Lord. Refresh us in our salvation today. Remind us that you are our shepherd. Remind us that this is the true story of our lives, the reality of our lives, that you, Yahweh, are our shepherd. Lord God, we plead with you that if anyone else, if anyone does not yet trust in Jesus and therefore truly know the true Lord as their true shepherd, that you would save them this very day. 
that David's gospel offer through this psalm would pierce their hearts with healing and resurrection power and that they would know that you've adopted them into your family this day. May this be their new birth birthday. Father, we plead with you in Jesus' name. Refresh your sheep. Feed your sheep through your servant today with the love of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. For we pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. That's right, Eddie. Before we get into this, I think we need to remember that sometimes when we look at the way David's talking about how the Lord treats him, the temptation is to take it as if we will not suffer. You know? Like, you're just walking through your days like, boom, 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 boom. Food, food everywhere. Water, water everywhere. Everything's just before you. It's like, it's like God, God's your waiter walking with you and bringing you, you know, taking your tray away, bringing you new food all day long. And it's just, it's this life of ease. Now, you know that's not true because often when you turn to this psalm, it's when you're suffering, right? At the patient, at the bedside of someone who's a patient in the hospital who is suffering greatly, um, at the bedside of someone who is actively dying, right? Um, at a funeral where you're mourning the grief of someone that you love who has died. Um, this, this psalm is comforting to us in the midst of suffering. But I also want to acknowledge that sometimes when we read this, you know, I will fear no evil. You know, you always comfort me. You're always with me. You always provide for me. Sometimes because we're finite and sinful creatures, it can kind of be hard to swallow. Like sometimes Psalm 23 may not feel all that true in the, in the moment that you're grasping for it. And so sometimes it's like, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I know that you're with me. I know that this is true in the midst of suffering. I know that you haven't left me. But Lord, sometimes it feels like you do. Psalm 44 basically is like, Lord, what, what's going on? Why have you left us? The very same psalmist David will say things like, Lord, why do you hide your face from me? Why are you stand afar off from me? So I want to acknowledge that this song is comforting, but it can be even more deeply comforting when we understand it in the light of the surrounding psalms and the total life of David and the life and ministry and sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus. So let's look first at David's shepherd. Let's look at who this shepherd is and what he does. David is telling us through this psalm, look how good the Lord is to me. This intimate image of a shepherd. He's my shepherd, implying I am a sheep. Shepherds are needed by the most stubborn, rebellious, weak, helpless always in danger of death creatures, that is, sheep. And God, by His Holy Spirit, has non-humiliatingly, but humblingly, reminded us that that is what we are like ultimately. Jesus, by the very word of His power, sustains every molecule of our bodies constantly. We are like sheep because we go astray, we're also absolutely weak and helpless in and of ourselves. And we have no idea how much it takes for God to sustain us 
and care for us in one sense. He's all-powerful, but there's a lot of details to His love. So let's look at verse 1. Who is this shepherd of David? He says, The Lord is my shepherd. Let's camp out on this for a second. Who is the Lord? In some of your Bibles, you'll have Lord as capital O, capital L, capital O, spell Lord, right? Capital R, capital D. And Bibles use that spelling of Lord when the Hebrew word that's being translated is Yahweh. I don't know how it was originally pronounced, right? But Yahweh. Let's think just a second. Who is this shepherd? Who is Yahweh? Well, we remember in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the stars also. This Yahweh is the creator of the universe. He's the maker of the stars that you could never number. He is truly almighty and powerful. He made us and designed us specifically and upholds our lives. David is, is marveling in the fact that, you know, who would you want to have for your shepherd? Oh, I don't know. The Lord! <laughs> the one who spoke to Moses in the burning bush saying, I don't need you. I'm not dependent on you. Therefore, when I ask you to do something, it's because I love you and I'm giving you the privilege of being involved. Miss Cheryl taught the children that in Sunday Night Live. You know, a tissue burns, and then when the tissue is consumed, the fire goes out. But the burning bush was never consumed. Therefore, the fire didn't need the bush. It was self-sustaining. God is our self-sustaining Lord, our almighty Creator, He's also the Lord who shepherded His people Israel out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, out of the house of slavery, brought Him through the wall of waters of the Red Sea. They passed safely through the waters and then those waters, uh, God stopped upholding them in that miraculous way and they drowned the Egyptian army. This is who David is proclaiming to be his shepherd. Can you see why he wants us to trust in him? You know, sometimes I struggle to trust God. Some, I struggle, struggle to trust his goodness. I, I, I forget his power. You know, I know no, none of you can relate to that, right? And I have to be reminded that this is who the Lord is. He is so good. As we'll see, he proved his goodness most explicitly at the cross of Jesus Christ giving His own Son for us. How shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? So David is exulting in the fact that for his shepherd, he has the almighty, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. And you who trust in Him. David's shepherd is none other than the Lord Yahweh Himself. So, and then, he's, and then he's basically just showing God off to us. He's like, now I want you to look at how he loves me. I want you to follow my sheep path with the Lord and just see how good he is to me. And he's just celebrating the goodness of the Lord. Let's, let's walk with David as sheep of the Lord through David's display of the Lord's goodness in his life. First, obviously... He says he's my shepherd. And a shepherd is one who cares intimately, actively, and presently, a good shepherd, in love for his sheep. 
He's always with them. He cares for them deeply. And he successfully provides for all their needs. Let's look how David elaborates on this in this great poetic psalm. He says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You know, I will not lack any good thing. You know, does it mean that Christians will never be hungry? No. Look at the life of the Apostle Paul, right? Does it mean that we won't be out stuck at sea for a night and a half or whatever? Does it mean that we won't be abased? No, it doesn't. But because of the Lord's loving presence and His perfect providence, we never lack anything we truly need. One one, uh, commentator said, every good cross and every good thing that we know from Romans 8 that all things, God works all things together for the good of those who, who love Him and have been called by Him. And so, David lacks no truly good thing. The Lord knows what he needs and he's faithful to give it to him. Look at the tenderness of the Lord and the the, the ability to give peace that the Lord has to David. Look at verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Again, he's speaking of himself as a sheep of the good shepherd of the Lord. Now, something I learned about what it takes to get a sheep to lie down, there's this great book that Joel let me borrow called um, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Um, And he kind of goes into details about what this may be referring to more deeply, okay? That, you know, just lie down. Okay, that's not how sheep work, all right? Um, Sheep have to be totally free of four things in order to be confident enough to be willing to actually lie down. They have to be free um, from feeling hungry, so they have to be well-fed in order for them to lie down. It's like if they're lying down in a green pasture, they're lying down in a bunch of food, right? So it's like if you're really hungry, you're not going to lie down. You're just going to be woofing down all the the grass, right? So they have to be free of hunger. They have to be free from, from conflict with all the other sheep. The shepherd has to protect them from fighting with the other ones or being harassed by the other sheep. Otherwise, they'll be terrified, right? Um, They have to be free from fear of outside enemies, of wolves and other predators that would come in and and kill them, right? So they have to trust in the power and protection of their shepherd in order to have peace enough to lie down. And they have to be free from flies, from pests, from, you know, what he talked about was how there are these specific pests that will, can literally drive sheep crazy and drive them to kill themselves. Like, it's not just like, eh, a fly. Like, there are these nose flies that get up in them and literally drive them crazy. And so the shepherd has to know what ointments and basically pest, you know, warding off lotions to put on the sheep to protect them so that they're safe and that they're free of harassment so that they can actually have peace to just lie down at, at noontime in the lush grasses that the Lord leads them to. He's gentle, and he gives us peace enough to rest, right? That's a good reminder to us. How do we rest? Are we willing to trust the Lord enough to lie down, right? Are are we afraid to stop working? Are we afraid to stop trying to make things work for ourselves so that we can't actually rest and enjoy the Lord's presence and peace? 
He leads me beside still waters. He knows exactly what I need. He doesn't throw me in a rushing river for me to drown. He, he, he leads me to the sources of refreshment that he who has created me knows that I need. David goes on in verse 3 to say, He restores my soul. He sets my soul back on its feet. Uh, this author, um, his last name is Keller. I think it's Philip Keller. And the shepherd looks at Psalm 23. Talks about the phenomenon of sheep being cast. You know, in, Psalm, in some of the Psalms, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? This is actually a technical shepherding term. Cast for sheep. What happens is, some of them, if maybe, well, for various reasons, if a sheep falls over, it cannot get back up. And the gases will begin to bloat up internally in the sheep. And if that sheep is not turned right side up in a fairly short time, the sheep will die. And so one of the constant labors of a good shepherd is to be absolutely vigilant that he doesn't see any four hooves sticking up out of the grass, right? <laughs> He's got to be on constant alert. If those of you who remember the 1980s uh, ever went to like Chuck E. Cheese or Showbiz Pizza, well, Chuck E. Cheese is still around. I don't know if they still have it, but there's this old game called Whack-A-Mole. And there are these like dark plastic things. I may have used this as an illustration before. And the, the point is, as soon as they come up, you got to whack them down with this big padded hammer thing, right? And it probably feels like parenting or some other task of multitasking where you're like, okay, what's going on? Oh, she needs this. All these things are kind of coming out. So That's how the Lord revives and restores our soul. He takes cast down, cast upside down, sold sheep, and he carefully, gently, not because that would hurt us, right? All bloat and everything. He carefully, slowly, nourishes us back to confident faith and experience of His goodness in the midst of our suffering. Amen? He picks us back up and sets us on our feet. That's what David is saying right there. Look how He cares for me. Every time I fall down, He picks me up. I mean, I fall down a lot. I don't know about you. But every time, He picks me up. The righteous man falls seven times, you know. He'll be lifted up and picked up by the Lord. God always forgives our sins, and His love and His gospel are powerful to give us peace and to give us hope. How many of you have experienced just hopelessness? Even as a Christian, you don't always feel super sheepy under the Lord's shepherding, but the Lord is able by His Holy Spirit, through His Word, I think the grass and the Water can be pictures of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Because, you know, Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep, right? What does he feed them with? The gospel through the Word of God. The power of the Word and the Spirit of God to give hope to hurting people is amazing. And my prayer for you is that if you're lacking hope, that the Lord would use this very sermon in the context of the life of David and pointing to the life of Jesus to renew your hope this morning, to restore your soul. So verse 3, he then talks about how, how kindly and graciously the Lord leads him. Now, it says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. This can be translated right paths or good paths, like 
paths that sheep should be on so they don't fall off the cliff. And there, there's an aspect to it there. But I also believe that David's actually also talking directly about his own growth in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, looking ahead in faith to Jesus. He's talking about how God actually not only forgives us, but he actually starts to clean us up some, right? You know, he doesn't just forgive you for having dirty hands. He gives you soap and you actually get to wash your hands and not feel as gross sometimes, right? He changes us over time. And David is saying, God gets all the credit, you know, for when I make the right decisions. I, I'm to blame when, with the Bathsheba stuff and everything, but, but, you know, the fact that I'm a man after God's own heart ain't because of me. It's because the Lord leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. He puts His own name up as collateral for His promise to make you more like Jesus throughout this life. And as you know, he often uses the deepest valleys of suffering as the very process to do that, right? That's what David talks about here in this next verse, verse 4. He says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. What is this valley of the shadow of death? Well, carrying on with the metaphor of sheep and shepherd, uh, different seasons of the year... Uh, determine what, where the sheep would be. And so in certain seasons of the year, the shepherd would take his sheep and drive them to other pastures, higher pastures, away from sort of the home camp. And often this would involve, and on the journey to get to those greener pastures, as it were, for that season of the year, they would have to go through dangerous valleys. And I believe that's what this is talking about here. And it's interesting, as we think about the valley of the shadow of death in our own lives, that those valleys, those dark, deep valleys, are the very paths that lead you to greater pasture, to greater righteousness, to greater Christ-likeness and enjoyment of God. We don't get to those other pastures without going through that valley of the shadow of death. The Bible says it is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Some of you have had funerals recently that I've gotten to attend. And there is great sorrow, but as Christians there's great hope. And walking through death and grieving and the danger of death and knowing the Lord's presence in the midst of those things can be in itself the very green pasture to know the love and intimate presence of Jesus Christ, our shepherd. This valley of the shadow of death refers to things not just literally dying, but the, the, the word, the phrase is the shadow of death, but it is like this, the deepest darkness that often includes the immediate danger of death. That's what you should think of it as. So it's not just for funerals, right? Those of you who may not be physically dying more rapidly and actively right now. We're all dying, but you know what I mean? Um, this still applies to you. It applies to all kinds of suffering that you're going through. Caring for a loved one who's going through very difficult things. You know, all kinds of things. It's the places in your life that feel the most dark and that feel just, I can't see my way out of this. I don't see any light coming through on the other side. Now David says, by God's Spirit, I fear no evil. He's able to comfort me 
in the midst of darkness. But I don't know. He may have feared a little bit at first. You know, there are definitely times if you look at the other Psalms where he is he's scared. And he's like, Lord, what, don't hide your face from me. I'm in the dark here, Lord. Help me. Where's the light? Where's the hope? But ultimately, David can, can confess not his own faith. He's not going, but look how strong my faith is, man. You should have strong faith too. Otherwise, you wouldn't be so worried and upset about all this stuff. I mean, you just got to trust Jesus more. He, he's not doing that. His own lack of fear is the very path of righteousness that God is leading him in for his namesake. When God gives me peace, man, he gets all the credit. Thank you, Lord. We, we're responsible to call on him and ask him for faith and stay in his word, the, the, the pastures and the water of his word and his spirit, but, but God gets all the glory when we get the comfort. And if you're waiting on that comfort, I trust and ask you to trust that it may not be there yet, but it's coming. It's coming because of Jesus. He says, I will fear no evil, verse 4, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God's rod and staff, are the shepherd uses those for all kinds of things to to, he uses the, the rod to comb through the wool of the sheep to inspect them for any pests or anything like that. It's, it's an act of loving care. He uses it as part to guide the sheep. Um, there's this rod or club is also used to uh, the shepherds in Africa. Uh, this writer the, from the book I've been referring to talks about how they are so skilled at throwing that club, that rod, and killing an animal to protect the sheep from danger. So it's a comforting thing, but it's also, because it's a weapon, it's comforting in that way too. And then the staff, that shepherd's crook, the shepherds use those for all kinds of things. Um, One of the things that I learned they use them for is to take a newborn sheep to its mother so that the shepherd's scent isn't on the sheep, kind of like a baby bird. If you try to rescue a baby bird, like don't get your scent on it or the mother will reject it to present that to its mother, and the mother won't reject it. That's one thing. Another thing, if the sheep falls uh, into a place where it's hard to get to, you can use that crook to rescue them, to bring them out of danger and into safety. And so those two aspects of God, able to care for us, able to protect us, and able to rescue us, are um, how David is receiving comfort in the midst of that suffering. Now, he kind of changes imagery here, and I think the Lord, he's presenting the Lord as his host, okay, as the party thrower. You can make analogies to sheep and the table of the pasture land and all that, but I really do think that his, his shepherd is also his host, and that in the midst of enemies, God throws us a banquet, that his shepherd gives, gives him a banquet in battle, which sounds totally weird and like it wouldn't make any sense. Like, how can you have a banquet in battle? But look at what God does to David. Verse 5. You prepare a table before me. That is throwing a party, throwing a feast language. That is not um, Passover meal, f- fleeing out of Egypt, uh, just grabbing, you know, unleavened bread, grab it, let's go, 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 go. He is at rest. He's sitting at a table with the Lord in peace, though he is surrounded by enemies in battle. 
This is the kind of peace that the Lord gave David when he was fleeing from King Saul, as Joel's preached about, um, fleeing for his life and from Saul's soldiers, spending the night in caves and things like that, that the Lord was able to give him peace in the midst of great suffering later on in his life. And this psalm may have been written after this incident. David's own son Absalom pursued him with armies to kill him. He had to flee from his own son who was trying to murder him. And yet David, having suffered that, can say, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It's other host and banquet language and hospitality language. You anoint my head with oil. You know, Jesus challenged Simon the Pharisee when he went to dinner at his house. He's like, you've given me no oil, but this woman has not ceased to anoint my feet with her tears, right? It was a, a way of welcoming a guest to a peaceful restful meal you anointed their head with oil it was a bomb and it smelled really good it had beautiful smelling spices in it it was a refreshment it it whew, it was part of your being able to relax and rest in the beautiful sense and the the comforting feel of the oil on your head and then he says my cup overflows right my cup runneth over what is that image it's an image of feasting it's, it's like the wedding of Cana when they're like, hey, we've run out of wine. Mary was like, Jesus, we've run out of wine. What are we going to do? And then he makes, turns water into wine out of these great vats of cleansing water. And there's more than enough. And it's the, he saved the best wine for last. That is the image. It's of a, a cup of wine that's spilling over. It's so full. It's an image of celebration with the Lord and abundance and gladness of heart and just ease and enjoyment with the Lord in the presence of his enemies. That God is able to protect him enough to give him peace and communion with himself in the midst of this danger. And it's also a way of vindicating David to his enemies in the way the Lord's with him and gives him this feast of his loving presence. So then David says, Surely goodness and mercy, that word mercy is what we translate as grace or, or uh, steadfast love, chesed. It's the gospel. It's God co God's covenant, merciful, forgiving, I bind myself to you forever in marriage kind of love. And he says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. David not only is aware of God's active care in the present, but he is so confident that he will always be with the Lord. And it's interesting because the verb used here for follow me is pursue me. It can mean just follow, but the overwhelming use of that Hebrew word in the Old Testament is the context of like a, a wolf hunting you down. You know, they pursued the other army. Pursue, pursue, pursue. And I think God is, this is kind of a clever, fun way to think about how God blesses you. God hunts you down to bless you. He stalks you with his grace. Don't be freaked out about that. You, but you're walking, God is fast on your tail to bless you with all of his good provision, his good presence, and so wonderfully, his permanent forgiveness of sins. That's what David experiences in Psalm 32. He talks about, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will never count his sin. Right? He knows the permanent forgiveness of God through faith in his Lord. That's how, God, how much God loves him and how faithful God is to him. And lastly, he says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, last week Joel talked about how David wanted to make a house for the Lord, but the Lord says, nope, I don't need a house. I'm going to make you a house. But what he was talking about is, I'm going to make you my family, and your son will be on your throne forever, the everlasting kingdom. I'm making you a household, a royal household, right? And so I believe it's possible there's this double meaning here. I don't think, first, the temple itself hadn't been built yet. There was a tabernacle, but the temple had not yet been built when David wrote this. But I think the point here is, David's going to be in the loving, communing presence of the Lord forever. He is always with me, and I'm going to always be with him because he's adopted me into his family, right? How can you dwell with God forever unless you've been adopted into his family? Jesus says a slave or servant doesn't abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. And that's the confidence that David has of his adoption in Christ very briefly, not even as a second point, but setting this whole thing you've just heard in the context of the gospel, I want you to imagine if Uriah the Hittite's wife, uh, mother read this psalm. You know what I'm talking about? You know, the guy that was Bathsheba's husband that David had killed in battle. Well, let's say you are his mother. You're still alive. David, you know, committed adultery with your daughter-in-law and then had your son killed in battle. Imagine reading Psalm 23 about David and how good God is to David. Do you feel the scandal of that? I'm not trying to like color your Psalm 23 comfort. You know, this is actually really comforting, so hang in there. Do you see the scandal of that? Like, you're going to kill my son and then you get all this stuff? Are you serious? He's always with you. He's throwing you parties in the midst of your enemies. Where was my son's party? What in the world? David deserves hell because he's a sinner. It's crime against God. We cry out for justice on David's head for the sake of Uriah the Hittite, do we not? And yes, David's son that she conceived ended up dying, and that is horrible, but his sins don't just deserve his son dying. They deserve hell. And so how can God still be good and be the shepherd of Psalm 23? David's saying, look how good he is to me, but I'm saying, look how he could be so good to him and not be evil. How is that possible? It's because, not, because David's shepherd would become David's son. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am. He's claiming to be the Lord. He says, I am. That's the Yahweh name. I am Yahweh. I am David's Lord. I am the very same shepherd of Psalm 23. Jesus challenges the Pharisees and says, all right, I got you one. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You know, the Christ, whose son is he? Well, he's the son of David. Well, how can he say that He's his son, but also call him Lord. The Lord said to my Lord this. They're like, uh, we're done. We don't need to talk about this anymore, right? And how is that? Romans 1 tells us that the gospel of God 
is about Jesus Christ, who is the seed of David, according to the flesh. I believe he was adopted into the seed of David by Joseph. Doesn't give us Mary's genealogy. But the point is, he's of the family of David. And the Son of God, declared to be the Son of God, but according to the spirit of holiness through the resurrection of the dead. He is both David's son and God's divine son, who we know now is Yahweh. It was the divine son of God before he became flesh that, Jesus, that David was specifically referring to throughout this entire psalm. Does that not make it bloom for you even more? No, we know that we interpret the psalms in light of others that surround them. They're, I'm convinced they're actually the structure to the whole book of Psalms. And it's no accident that right before Psalm 23, we find Psalm 22, in which David in part describes his own life, but ultimately is obviously pointing to the fact that his son would become his lamb at the cross. In Psalm 22, you have, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very shepherd of Psalm 23 came to be in one sense abandoned in David's place at the cross. The abandonment that David deserved and you and I deserve, his own son would become his lamb and rescue him at the cross. Later on in that song, they've pierced my hands and my feet. They've divided my, my garments and cast lots for them. Very specific promises that can't be about anything but the very crucifixion of Jesus. But in that same psalm, Jesus was asked to be delivered. In that same song, you have the words, you have answered me. That's the resurrection. And it talks about the glorious kingdom and expanding kingdom of Jesus and all, all these things in, at the end of Psalm 22. But what I want you to understand is that David was looking ahead in shadow form, albeit. He was looking ahead in faith to his son who had become his lamb that the shepherd of David is the son of David. And what that tells us is that if you want to know the Lord as your shepherd, if you want to be able to be confident that this is true of you, that David's Lord and David's shepherd is your Lord and your shepherd, you need to look to David's son, Jesus Christ, and believe on him. And to trust that God can be good and be good to you in this way. He can forgive you forever. Because you trust in what David's son also cried out at the cross. What else did he cry out at the cross? It is finished. Amen?